Thank you for listening to this message from Life in the Sun Christian Fellowship. We hope you'll be inspired to honor God and make disciples. Welcome to week six in our series, Great Faith. The purpose of taking six whole weeks to talk about faith is to encourage you, to build you up, to encourage you to live by faith. Life is like a race. Life is like a marathon. And we're encouraging to run that race, run the race that God has given you to live your life by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We looked at stories at the lives of Enoch and Noah, Abraham and Sarah, last week Moses, and today we'll read about many others. And after listening to all of these amazing stories in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews begins chapter 12 with the word, therefore. Everything that we have learned in the last six weeks is leading up to a point. And the writer of Hebrews says, because of everything that we've heard, therefore, and we read in Hebrews 12, verse 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. In this verse, in these two verses, the writer of Hebrews uses the illustration of an athlete. He's talking about a runner, and he's talking about running a race. I understand yesterday, Zarina and Winnie ran a half marathon. Zarina was sitting over there. I think she's, oh, there she is in the back. <laughs> a half marathon. In the world of sports, uh, because of social media, because of um, the digital age, uh, and because of the ability to have instant replays and to see a game all over the world, there is a phenomenon that has developed. It's become a thing. And the thing is called clutch performance. Anybody ever heard the term clutch performance? I see a few hands, mostly men. <laughs> In the world of sports, there is this thing called clutch performance. And uh, I, I looked it up online and found out there was actually a page in Wikipedia. And this is the definition. Clutch performance in sports is the phenomenon of athletes under pressure, usually in the last minutes of a game, to summon strength, concentration, and whatever else necessary to succeed to perform well and perhaps change the outcome of the game. It occurs in basketball, hockey, football, and other sports. The opposite is choking. You don't want to be a choke artist. <laughs> a choke artist is one who fails to perform as needed when under pressure. In the world of sports, can anybody take a guess as to who is the world's best clutch performer? Any guess? Michael Jordan. Yep, again, men answering the question. <laughs> Michael Jordan, just in his NBA career alone, has 25 game-winning shots, game-winning shots. And out of those 25, 
24 were in the last 10 seconds of the game. And out of those 24, eight of those were at the buzzer. 25 game winning, that doesn't even include college career, that's just the NBA. Hebrews 11 is referred to as the Hall of Faith. Hebrews 11, these are the clutch performers of the faith. The writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to run the race by faith and to run with endurance. Amen? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles let us run that race, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So, the question as we come to this point in the series is, how do we do that? And that's what this message is about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us uh, such a large group of people to role model for us. And most of all, Jesus himself. Lord, we ask that by your spirit and by our faith, you would take your word and reveal it, reveal the significance of it. We ask, Lord, that you would implant it in our hearts, that it would grow deep, that it would be rooted and grounded in our lives and become alive. And even more than that, not just real to us, but multiply through us as we share words of faith, as we express responses of faith, especially when we're in a clutch situation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Our text for today, picking up where we left off in the series, Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 32. The writer says, How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. These are the kinds of stories that you would expect in the Hall of Faith, the clutch performers of the faith. But then the writer of Hebrews takes a turn, and he begins to address another category of people also in the Hall of Faith. He said, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half, and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute, meaning homeless, and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. The obvious question when you read the second half of this list is how can you possibly demonstrate great faith when bad things happen? 
How do you demonstrate great faith when bad things happen? One of the greatest clutch performers in all the Bible is a man named Job. And I'd like to read just the first chapter of Job, and I think there are three things that we can glean from the life of Job. Beginning in verse 1. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in the entire area. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular practice. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. And Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. And then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God, and he stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but... Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but do not harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting in the oldest at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. The oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. <clears throat> Job stood up, tore his robe in grief, and then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, 
The Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Out of this chapter, there are three things that I would like us to observe. I've called these the three realities of great faith. Reality number one is the reality that there is a real enemy. Jesus warns us about the enemy. Jesus said the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Once upon a time, there was a bad typhoon on Guam. This is not a true story, but it could be. There was a super typhoon. And in the morning, when the neighbors came out to assess the damage, one of them noticed a tree had fallen on his, on his garage. <clears throat> damaged the garage, damaged the car. The, neighbor, the other neighbor came out. They were both looking at this. The problem is the tree was on one neighbor's side of the property, but fell onto the adjacent property, damaging the neighbor's garage and car. And they were sitting there trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to handle the insurance claim? Is it your claim or is it my claim? And so they decided, well, you know what, let's just both file claims and we'll let the insurance company figure it out. And so they did, and the insurance companies responded, and they said this was an act of God. That's another way of saying to us that we naturally blame God. <laughs> it's easy to do, especially when the enemy operates by stealth. Job had no idea what was happening behind the scenes, and yet he didn't make the mistake of blaming God. How do you demonstrate great faith when bad things happen? We need to know the reality of a very real enemy. Reality number two is the reality of God's love. Elmore and Armin uh, made that powerful point last week. Armin, thank you for that word last week. How many appreciate Armin? That was great. <laughs> Just cool to see how the Holy Spirit was dovetailing between those two and that message. They talked about how God loves you. They talked about and beautifully illustrated how God demonstrated that. If you think about this in the context of what happened to Job, if you think about God's love and think about what happened to Job, it's easy to go, really? Really? God loves Job? It didn't look like it to me. That doesn't look like love to me. The test isn't for God to prove his love for us. He already did. Elmore and Armin beautifully illustrated that last week. I'm not going to belabor that point. If you weren't here, by the way, listen to the podcast. Go to uh, lifeinthesunguam.com and just go to messages and it'll be there. But the test isn't for God to prove his love for us. He already did that. He gave his only son. There is no greater love. The test isn't about God's love. The test was for Job. Love isn't proven until it's tested. You know, sometimes people say Adam was perfect. You know, I wish we could go back to the garden. Adam wasn't perfect because Adam wasn't tested. Adam wasn't proven. 
Jesus was proven. Jesus was tested, and he passed the test. Jesus is perfect. And so, in order for love to be demonstrated, there has to be a test. God passed the test. The Father passed the test. The Son passed the test. You've heard me say this before. In the Bible, the number 10 is symbolic of testing. You will actually see in the Bible the number 10 together in the same verse with the word test. I'll give you just a couple examples. Most of you have heard these before. But let me just ask you, how many times was, was Pharaoh tested uh, in Egypt? <clears throat> 10. We often think of the 10 plagues. We, we know it better by, by that point of view. But it was also a test for Pharaoh in his response to God. The Ten Commandments are a test of our relationships with God and with people. The first four have to do with our relationship with God. The next six have to do with our relationship with people. The number 10 is symbolic of testing. How many lepers were healed by Jesus? It was a test to see how many would come back and give thanks. Daniel said to the guard, Test us for how many days to not eat the king's food, but just to eat vegetables and see if we don't look better at the end of 10 days. It was 10. You know, of all the things that Job lost, what do you think was most precious to him? His children. It didn't occur to me until I was studying this, how many children did Job have? It was a test. How do you demonstrate great faith when bad things happen? Years ago, when I was a young parent, and you can always tell when something, when, when your love for God is not pure and there's something else that has a greater hold in your heart than God himself. All you got to do is ask yourself, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What do you fear losing? And whatever it is that you're afraid of losing is something that you're holding on to more than God himself. So the thing that I was holding on to when I was a young parent was my daughter, Nicole. She's our youngest, our baby. We thought about her. We prayed about her. We planned her. And then we brought her home from the hospital, and we just sat up all night looking at her. I was like, wow, it moves. <laughs> Amazing. And then we would, her first word, by the way, was dada. I told Terry that. She was jealous. <laughs> she goes, dada, how come not mama? <laughs> and she was just, she was so much fun and full of joy. And Tara was about three years old. And we'd wake up in the morning. I'd say, Tara, go over to the crib and make her laugh. And that's been Tara's role ever since. But as Nicole was growing up, the enemy would play mind games with me. And I, I know these are not from me, because I would just, it's not even in my realm to think this way. And I won't even tell you what I was thinking, because it's grotesque. But the enemy would plant an image in my mind of a gruesome death of my daughter. And it would shake me to the core. I would just be like in fear. I was like, God, what is that? 
you know, as premonition, as a, a warning, you know, and I'd just be on my knees in prayer. I'd be like, Lord, never, please, no, take this away. Don't let this come, don't let this come to pass. And that would be my response. I would just respond in fear. It was like I was paralyzed. It was like I was crippled in hope and faith and trust. And all of a sudden, one day, it just occurred to me after this happened many times, many times, over maybe a couple years, finally I caught on. I said, you know what? This is an attack from the enemy. It just puts me in fear and paralyzes me. And I realized I needed to pass the test of what God did with his son, what Abraham did with Isaac, what Job did with his ten kids. I needed to release her. I needed to release her. And so I said, God, in all sincerity and genuineness, in being genuine, I said, God, I release my daughter. If you take her today, I will still praise you, and I will give thanks, and I will thank you for the time that I had with her. And I tell you, after I did that, that image, that attack never came back again. It's been gone to this day. You see, the enemy, he's like a, an extremist terrorist. You ever seen those movies where there's kidnapping and they kidnap a loved one and then they send you a ransom note unless you give us a million dollars, we're going to kill your loved one? That's demonic. Where that comes from is the enemy. He'll take anything that you love, anything that is precious to you, anything that you value, and he'll put his finger on it and threaten to take it so that you will bow down and back off. And until you get free from that and give it up and say, God, you alone are enough, then he's got leverage on you. He can control you. <clears throat> How do you demonstrate faith when bad things happen? You need to have God as the number one source and priority, your first love above all else. <clears throat> this is a quote by John Piper. <clears throat> when you desire Christ above all things, <clears throat> Armin, if you wouldn't mind getting that water bottle on that chair over there in the corner to your right. When you desire Christ above all things, you implicitly show that Christ is valuable, precious, desirable, a treasure. And the more intensely you desire him, the more suffering you are willing to endure without losing your satisfaction in him, the more valuable you show him to be. That is the meaning of glorifying Christ. That's what it means. The intensity of my treasuring communicates the worth of the treasure. That's what it means to glorify the treasure. Christ is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. <clears throat> Jesus said it this way. He said, the kingdom of God <clears throat> is like a man who found a treasure. And then he, he took that treasure, he, he found it on a piece of land, and he took that treasure and he buried it. And then he went back home and he sold everything that he had in order to buy that land. We need to seek the experience, we need to seek to experience the presence of God as the greatest treasure. At the end of the book of Job, the very last chapter, 
something amazing happens to Job. At the end of the book of Job, chapter 42, something amazing happens to him. The Lord reveals himself to Job. Verse 5 of 42, I'll just read it for you. Job says, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. And at that point, none of Job's questions mattered because God was enough. God's presence is more than enough to meet any need that we may feel. At the end of chapter, at the end of Job, chapter 42, after the Lord reveals himself to Job, we read that God restored everything that Job had. In fact, he doubled it. In terms of his physical possessions, the Lord doubled everything that Job had. Cattle, donkeys, um, sheep, goats, everything was doubled. Not only that, but he also remarried and he had 10 more kids. And guess what? He had seven boys and three girls. And the Bible says that of all the women in the land, Job's daughters were the most beautiful of all the women. No one was more lovely than Job's three daughters. And he put his girls in the will with the boys. <clears throat> That's a tremendous legacy. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so how do you demonstrate great faith when bad things happen? Hold on to the reality of God's love like it's the only treasure. <clears throat> this next one, as I've alluded to already, is the reality of God's presence. Hold on to the reality of God's presence. When I was a kid, our family had a family dog, and she was amazing. Uh, she belonged to the neighbors where we lived, and uh, they were busy. They both worked, and they had um, a little child, and, um, and so the dog would be left all day by itself. And we would be home, and we'd play with the dog, and uh, we, just, we just loved her. And so my little brother, John, we would always send him over to the neighbors and say, hey, ask the neighbor if we can have her. <laughs> and of course, they said no. But my little brother, John, he's a, he's a character. We would send him again and again. It was like every week, go ask them if we can have her. Finally, after months, they said, OK, you can have her. <laughs> and that's how we got her. And she was just a puppy then. She was so cute. She was pure white and long hair. We called her Snowball. <laughs> And uh, man, she was smart, she was loyal, and she traveled with us wherever we went. My dad was in the military, got stationed in Europe in Germany. And so um, we went to the travel agent to find out how much it was to take her. And it was expensive. And the travel agent said, well, why don't you just leave the dog here on Guam? And my dad said, I have a wife and four kids that will leave me if I do that. <laughs> So she went with us. And our family, we loved to camp. And we were camping in Europe. And uh, one day, we're at this campground. And somebody else also had a dog about three times her size. And that big dog came wandering into our territory. And she was so loyal. I mean, she would fight for us. 
And so one day I hear this dog fight going on. I'm like, what's up? And I look, and there she is, man. She's taking on this dog that's about three times her size, but she's kind of in a defensive mode because he's so big. I take off running. I said, I'm coming, hold on. The moment she heard my voice, she had a ferocity that rose up and she charged and she attacked that dog. When the master is present, when somebody greater is present, there is a confidence that rises up that we don't normally have. Job said, I had only heard about you, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. The writer of Hebrews spoke of fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's already present. He's already present. But perceiving his presence, that's another story. Do you remember the story of Elijah? There was an army that came after him. I don't know, how many of you have ever had an army come after you? <laughs> I mean, he must have been something that they felt so threatened they had to send an entire army. So the servant wakes up one morning, and he sees that the army is surrounding him. And the servant panics, and he runs to Elijah. He goes, they're, they're out there, they're out there, they're going to kill us. And in calmness and peace, Elijah just prays, and he says, Lord, I pray that you would open my servant's eyes. And all of a sudden, the servant looks out, and he sees an entire army of heavenly hosts, flaming angels surrounding the other army. And all of a sudden, Elijah walks out, and he prays a quick prayer. He says, Lord, blind them. And he doesn't mean like physical sight, but blind them from understanding is the idea. He walks out to this army, and he says, who are you looking for? He said, we're looking for Elijah. And he goes, well, I think he went to this town. I can show you where he went if you want. And so they follow him. He leads them into the center of the town, where now they're surrounded by the enemy. And then the Lord opens their eyes, and it was Elijah. But now he's got all his backup with him. And he goes free. When we know the presence of God, there is a boldness that will rise up to be able to face the enemy, the giants in your life. Do you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Nebuchadnezzar said, when you hear the music, you will bow down to me and my statue. And they said, oh king, we cannot and we will not bow down. And he said, oh, really? He said, have I introduced you to my strong men? And so these huge guys come out. And then he tells the people, heat up the fire seven times hotter than it's ever been. And he says, I'm going to give you one more chance. With the strong men standing there and the fire burning seven times hotter. And he says, when the music plays, you'll bow down to me. And they say, no, king, we cannot and we will not. And so he has them thrown in the fire. The fire is so hot, the men that threw them in the fire died. But Nebuchadnezzar looks in, and he says, did we not throw three, three people in the fire? He says, I see a fourth one, and the fourth one is shining like the sun. And the Lord saw faith from heaven and went in to be with them, and they were spared from the fire. Nebuchadnezzar called them out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. And he went and he observed them, like not even a hair on their skin was singed. It didn't even smell like smoke. It's amazing. The presence of God can make all the difference in your experience. Whatever trial, whatever thing 
it is that you're afraid of, whatever difficulty that you're going through, I encourage you to seek the experience of the presence of God. I want to close with this story. December 7th, 1988, there was a devastating earthquake in Armenia. If you don't know where Armenia is, just know people in Armenia kind of feel like us here on Guam. Whenever we travel the world, we have to explain where Guam is. <laughs> Armenia is just bordering Turkey, just north of Turkey, north of Iran. It used to be part of the old former Soviet Union. They had a devastating earthquake that killed 25,000 people. And in that trauma, there is one amazing story of faith. Right after the earthquake, a father ran to his son's school. The whole building was collapsed. Other parents showed up at the same time and just began wailing for their kids. And he went to where he thought the classroom used to be, and he began to dig through the rubble. And the other parents said, what are you doing? It's hopeless. Nobody could survive that. Just stop. It's OK. He's, he's gone. It's OK. Just let go. And he said no. And he began to dig one hour, two hours, eight hours. He kept digging 16 hours, 24 hours. 36 hours, he kept digging. He didn't stop. In the 38th hour, he heard voices down below where he was removing rubble. And he called out to his son. He said, is that you? And his son called back, Dad, Dad, I knew you would come. I told all my friends down here that if my dad is still alive, he will come and save us. And when he does, you will be saved too. His dad kept digging, and shortly after, 13 kids were saved in, an, in a tent pocket of air beneath this building. The reason I share that story, the little boy in Armenia demonstrated great faith in the midst of suffering, in the midst of what probably felt like forever, in darkness, without food, without water, for 38 hours. How long can you go without water? Maybe three days. It was getting desperate. This little boy demonstrated great faith because he knew his father would come after him, because he knew his father loved him. In summary, what is the most difficult thing that you're facing? What is the most difficult thing that you're going through right now? Or what is the worst thing that ever happened to you? When bad things happen, know this. There is a very real enemy. Remember that God loves you, and remember that God is with you, and seek to experience the presence of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are here standing in your presence and you know everything you know what we're going through you know how we're feeling how we are responding and God we need you we want you we 
Father, we ask for your presence to cover us and protect us because there is a very real enemy. And Lord, as we sang earlier today, fear to be gone now, here, now. In the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, by the presence and the power of God, Lord, we stand in your light and in your power by faith in the name of Jesus. And Father, we claim, we receive, we ask for, we desire, we want your peace, your perspective in the struggle, in the suffering. Because Lord, your presence is enough. We don't need anything else except you. We trust you, God. We invite you into the struggle, into the memory of the pain. And I ask that you would reveal yourself to us. Reveal yourself to me. And if you would just take some time in prayer right now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I asked you a moment ago, what is it that you're struggling with? Is there something you're afraid of? What is the worst thing that's happened to you? And I want to invite you right now, by faith, that's what this whole series is about, to trust God. And I want you to just seek his presence by faith. And through the eyes of your heart, fixing your eyes on Jesus, ask the Lord to show you where he is or what he's doing or what he's saying in your situation or in the memory of this pain that you have in mind that goes deep, that runs deep. So Lord, right now, all over this auditorium, I ask that you would reveal your presence to each person. Lord, I ask that you would allow them to see, to hear, to perceive your presence. just watch and listen however he shows himself to you however it comes to you watch and listen
Spirit, I ask that you would take what you have revealed and that you would seal it in the memory of our hearts, deep down inside, that we would know and not forget. 